Uh, this, uh, this week we're looking at the church's first sermon, um, but I will, I will tell you it's interesting uh, as I think about sermon preparation and what I've heard and learned and read, uh, the, the art and skill and technique of, of preparing a sermon is uh, not easy. Some people would rather have a heart attack than do public speaking. It's even worse when you think about trying to have a sermon where the Spirit of God is leading you and you're, you're not just speaking because you have something to say. It's not about you. This is about the revelation that Christ sent from heaven. The Spirit of God in the book uh, wants us to know certain things. And so I take this, uh, this uh, task pretty seriously. I think you deserve to know the best and uh, that's my job to do my work. But here's Peter, as I get into the uh, first sermon, this really isn't kind of a sermon, but this is the first time that the church has gathered together. And it's interesting, because a sermon is supposed to be a discourse of, of a Bible text, of, of some information that, that we know we've come to learn of, as preaching. And so there are certain things that people do. In the old church, I'll tell you... Uh, some of you don't know the story real quickly. I, I didn't, uh, there was two times I went to that church. And the first time the search committee said, yeah, we'd like to have you come and speak and we'll have a vote. And so the first time I went to that church, uh, I didn't pass. The, uh, the search committee uh, was comprised of a group of people who went through a church split. And the split was really kind of a messy thing. And there were people still around, and they didn't like that group. And you know how groups get, and people are. Well, they didn't leave, and so when I gave the sermon, uh, I needed 26 votes to pass, and I only got 22. Four people didn't even hear me speak and voted against me. And so I thought, they said, well, he doesn't yell loud enough. He doesn't, he's not a preacher. Some guys, but the idea that preaching. So they, I, I wrote him a letter and I sent back. I sent him a letter. Thank you for the opportunity to share the pulpit, and I, I know that God is doing something in your lives, and, and uh, He'll get the uh, the right man for you in there. And uh, but thank you. There's no hard feelings, uh, but I know you don't have somebody. So if you need somebody to fill in while you're looking for a pastor, I'd be glad to come up and serve, and and fill the pulpit. No hard feelings. You know, but I will say to you, for the next pastor, you need to learn to trust your, to trust each other. Because if you don't trust the leadership in the church, you won't trust the pastor. The problem isn't leadership; the problem is followership. And you don't trust each other. I said the next pastor is going to have this tr this trouble with you. So be aware: the problem isn't with what's in the pulpit; the problem is what's in your heart. I sent that letter off. That became the sermon. The guy took my letter up the next week and he read the sermon. He couldn't believe I, wasn't, I didn't have any hard feelings. And I said, but he, that thing about trusting was uh, an, an issue. But they read my letter as the sermon. I never intended that to be the sermon. So it, led, it leads me to think, what goes through the pulpit, what goes through people's minds, and what goes through... God's heart as he's trying to get people together. It's, it's always a, a mystery, but it always teaches me about uh, 
the text and the context, the, the word and people's worlds. And so you've got to address the heart. Well, as we get into the book of Acts, my concern, as you know, as uh, trying to be uh, biblical and do the right hermeneutics, the right biblical interpretation. I've said to you before that as Western Americans, my concern is that you will miss the meaning of the book of Acts because we read it from 2019 uh, in our context, and we will miss going back to that horizon. And here's the tension. There are two horizons that we have to look at. But we don't start with ours. We have to go back 2,000 years to get into their world as much as we can and understand what the text says to them in their context and so that we see how God is at work in that world, in those folks. And then and only then can we come forward not to adapt that message, not to accommodate that message, not to alter that message, but to align our lives with that message for what God was doing there he's going to do here but we will miss and that week, last week I talked about being distorted and, and all these different alternative religions and, and we are at a danger point in our culture I believe that we will forfeit the gospel by accommodating to worldly techniques and methods and letting the world dictate to us what we should be preaching and believing and when we do that, we forfeit the Holy Spirit's work. We forfeit and we are in danger of changing the gospel altogether. So for that reason, we mentioned some of those last week. We want to align ourselves and listen to what God's word says to God's people then and then bring it forward. And so as we listen, I want you to put on your Jewish mindset, which you don't have, <laughs> But we're going to go back into uh, their world and listen as a Jewish person would listen. And here's what you're going to hear. Here's a, here's a map as we run through this passage. And there's lots of moving parts in this. But the first thing is that you're going to, you're going to hear Peter talk about the introduction of the Holy Spirit's coming. This is the first time that people beyond the disciples um, would experience the indwelling the incarnating of the Holy Spirit. So Peter's going to announce the work, uh, announce the imminence and the presence of the Spirit of God, and he's going to anchor that experience, and we'll talk about this experience that they had, and, and how you understand spiritual experiences in light of Scripture. We'll look at that, and we'll look at how Peter, in particular, aligns this experience with the authority of the Word of God. Now that's a very significant thing. And if you're Jewish, you're going to certainly go back to Scripture. If you're not Jewish, you're not going to think, you may have a lighter view of Scripture because you won't have the 2,000-year-old record of the covenant of God. And therefore, many Gentiles were open and vulnerable because we don't have the grounding that the Jewish folks would give us in terms of time and history. But the last thing you'll see in this passage is that there is a response of God's people to the message that God, God had given to Peter. And that response involves the work of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, as, you, as we think about these, as you listen to this text, all these things are going to be going on at once. And don't worry if you don't get them because 
it's not your job to remember everything. It is the God, it is the job of the Holy Spirit to bring to your remembrance all that He has said. So we have a helper. So don't if you don't understand these things, you can relax because you will hear them over and over again because they go from generation to generation. But here are the takeaways. Here's what I want you to ponder that this these are the things that God wants to do in your life and in my life in real time. And the first thing is that that I pray for that we would appreciate and understand how God is at work on earth for heaven's sake. Well, I mean for the sake of heaven. But but he's he's working here and if you don't know how he works, then you'll miss seeing him at work. And two, we want to do like Peter did. We want to align our, our experience in our horizon, in our context. We want to align it just like they did with the scriptures. We want to get biblical. We want to think biblical and we want to relate powerfully as they did. But here's the key of it all. When the Spirit of God comes, he lifts up Christ. And lifting up Christ lifting up Jesus and what motivated those first century disciples is not, I I contend, the motivation of most Christians today. What motivates most North American postmodern people when they look at Christ is some self-improvement, some argument, some doctrinal position that they can... it's, It's not the person who's asking me to follow him. It may, about, it may be about getting into heaven or about getting off of drugs. Or, but what motivated the New Testament people wasn't what motivates us today. So we'll look at that. But you'll go into this idea of, of repentance. And re, we've mentioned this before, that repentance is a new way of thinking. It's not just turning away from problems. It's embracing a whole new kingdom mindset. And that's the metanoia word, that we become different, peculiar, uh, unusual in the sense that we become stamped with a kingdom spirit and the kingdom values, and we know who God is and what God is doing. And the last is, when the Spirit of God comes, the first thing you see happen, the first thing you see happen is the restoration of relationships. And you'll see that happening here in the book of Acts, and we'll go into that. So, as I begin this, I, uh, I go back to that commercial, that little girl whose mom who washes the dishes, and she's doing all this work, and so all of a sudden, the little girl comes up and says, what does the dishwasher do? She's a cute little kid, isn't she? But that's the same question. I say, well, what does the Holy Spirit do? Can you answer that question? If, if we're doing all the cleaning of our plates... What does the Holy Spirit do? What role does the Holy Spirit in our life when you're talking about sanctification, cleaning up your life, talking about salvation, understanding how God has provided for us the whole way of grace, but we're still cleaning the dishes. When the Spirit of God says, you don't need to do that. What does the Holy Spirit do? Well, Luke's account gives us insight to what the Holy Spirit does. And as you read the text, I want you to keep an ear out, an an eye out, uh, to what the Spirit is saying 
and how you can see him at work. Because if you don't get this, you'll, you'll go on to something else and, and you'll miss it. So every sermon has an introduction, body, and conclusion. Now, Peter really didn't give a sermon. Actually, it was kind of strange because as I thought about this, he had no prep time. He didn't do any Greek work. He didn't do any historical studies. He, didn't, he just stood up. And so he didn't, quote, give a sermon that we would think a, a pastor would do or a preacher would do, but nevertheless, he was the man that God would use and he would introduce that this, what you now see and hear among the Pentecost experience where the tongues of fire uh, came down, it was Peter who stood up. And what Peter would do, was he, he would say to the group gathered there in Jerusalem that day, in a way that we won't get it in the text, but to give you that feel, remember the 9-11 towers? Remember that sense of fear and awe and confusion? Remember the, the, um, the moon landing where you get this, oh, wow. That sense it, it would approach what they must have been feeling with this experience that here comes the Holy Spirit and and they couldn't speak in one sense because it was too overwhelming because they had never had and never had had in all of Scripture this experience. It was a one-time Kairos moment where the pouring out of the Spirit, the introducing of the Spirit, it's the coming of Christ and the fulfillment of everything He talked about in those 40 days. You wait here I will breathe on you and the Spirit of God will come upon you and you will be my witnesses to the nations. Well, the nations had gathered and here comes the Spirit. And when the Spirit comes upon them, it was, it was emotional, it was intense, it was scary, it was confusing. And people, what's going on here? What's going on here? But here's what you understand, need to understand. That when the Holy Spirit came and the this is the first time, at least in the book of Luke and Acts, the Spirit of God commences the work that Jesus started in the book of Luke. Now he's fulfilling it in the book of Acts. And by restoring the believer to be the man or the woman that God intended by implying the truth of the cross and the resurrection. So God had Peter stand up. And God spoke through Peter. And God spoke, as he always speaks, through people. There was a man sent from God named John. There was a man sent from God named Paul. And when you go see your friend Dan, you may or may not be aware of the fact that God speaks through you or to your friends. But God speaks through humans, and he speaks in many ways. As Hebrews says, in, in, in the former times, he would speak in all, in various manners, but in the last days, he would speak through a son. But make no mistake, 
God speaks through human people. And therefore, when we met the reporter last week to give the article, it was very clear in my mind that God had an appointed time for that woman to meet with Barb and Garland and I, and we knew that that was a divine encounter. If you don't think that God is at work bringing people together, you, your eyes are closed, or you're not being open to the leading of the Spirit. But God put Peter up there, he will put you up there, he'll put me up there to speak a message. At the right time, in the right way, God's at work. And so here he's doing it. Now, notice notice that it's the tongue of fire. Now, this is interesting because every time the Bible, uh, every time you see a beginning, the Holy Spirit's there. In the book of Genesis, when God is speaking, it was the Spirit of God hovering over the water. He was beginning there. In the case, <clears throat> in the case of uh, the baptism of John the Baptist, when John the Baptist and, and, and the beginning of the baptism of Jesus, the Spirit of God was there. When Jesus went to the wilderness, the Spirit of God was there. Any beginning taking place, it's because there is an architect behind it all that says, I want this done. But he's speaking through people. Why? Because back then people couldn't read. There weren't books. You didn't carry the Torah around. 95% of the people couldn't read. They were illiterate. So how would you get people to know about the kingdom? It's through relationship. People connecting. People talking. And therefore, Peter just stood up and he began to talk. And as he would talk, you would see over and over again that it was this one-on-one -on -one relationship. But Peter was going to tell a message. And that message that Peter would say in, in Aramaic or Hebrew, whatever he spoke, was the same message, I believe, that went through the whole nations. The Parthians, the Medes, the Libyans, the Egyptians, all of them heard the same message. But here you've got the diversity the diversity of language, the diversity of cultures being anchored in one message. And that's interesting because now you have international differences being unified, e pluribus unum. And how do you get people who are so radically different, who live in different parts of the world? The one quote I remember, if you have, if you have uh, three Jews together, you have ten opinions. And so you're always having this, well, it's the same for Gentiles, no different. But, but the idea of how do you get people to agree on anything without destroying the differences? If you don't have this unity and everything is diversity, there is, there is no diversity because everything is nothing. Because there's no difference. It doesn't make a difference what you are because it's all diverse. Diversity without unity is chaos. It's, it's meaningless in the sense it doesn't make a difference until you have this definition. What defines you is not your difference. What defines you is your identity in unity in Christ. And that's what the Spirit of God is doing. Now, so the body of, Paul, of Peter's message, he's saying that this is what you see. This is not some, these guys aren't drunk. Don't, mis don't misunderstand. There's something going on here. And if you're not 
reading the text very clearly, you will jump over the next section. And this passage becomes a contentious passage in the church because you will hear this key passage, repent and be baptized and you shall receive the forgiveness of your sin and you get the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is the passage that becomes a very conflictual passage for many things. But you won't understand that passage until you get to the next section. And the next section is really intriguing. Because Peter takes on a perspective that I wouldn't think, I wouldn't think, well, why is he going? And you should add, why is he saying this? And what he says is this. He says, uh, note what he does not say. He doesn't say in this message to the 3,000, he says, you need to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and then you'll get to heaven. He didn't say that. He didn't say, if you accept Jesus Christ as your Messiah, then you'll get off of drugs and you can have a good life. He didn't say that. He didn't say that if, if you receive the Holy Spirit, then you guys will have more power than the Pharisees and, and you have to go out and change them. He didn't say that. He didn't say that if you receive the Holy Spirit, you're going to have a great time. He didn't say that. What does he say? Let's listen. As he gets into this. And the first, the first thing he does is he goes to the book of Joel. Now, how many have read Joel within the last five years? <laughs> I know, you guys don't read Joel. But there's a passage in Joel that I want you to see. And uh, that passage, if I can find it here, the passage is very particular. So let me summarize the Reader's Digest conversion version of uh, the book of Joel. There's two parts to Joel. And the first part is Israel had rejected the Lord. And Joel is the minor prophet that says Israel has forgotten their God. Israel is going to be destroyed by the enemies. And therefore Israel, it says in 1-4, he says, what the locust swarm has left and the great locusts have eaten, what the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten, what the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. And people have taken those, that, that series of attacks by the locusts into four stages. And they, some versions say there's different kinds of insects involved. There's the flying locust that comes over and they just sweep through the land and they destroy. That's the first passage. But the second is those that are on the ground, those crawling locusts are going to really continue to decimate any kind of field. But not only that, the canker worm, those that are left behind, those are going to go in the ground and destroy. And then the caterpillar. What you've got here in Joel is a complete annihilation. The judgment of God is coming on your sin. And because the locust is going to destroy you, because you have turned away from God, you have forgotten God, and you will now be destroyed, Israel. Now remember, you're a Pentecost. And Peter is speaking. Why does Peter speak on this passage? Why did the Spirit of God lead Peter to this passage? He didn't go to Isaiah, comfort ye my people. The warfare is over. He didn't do that. 
He didn't go to Psalms. He says, the Lord is your shepherd. He didn't do that. What Peter is doing is anchoring this experience of Pentecost in Old Testament foundational concepts of judgment. And he says to this group, he says, Israel has rejected the Lord. That's the first part of Joel. The second part of Joel is, but God is going to pour out his spirit on all mankind. Did you hear that? Joel says, though you have sinned and you have forfeited the kingdom and rejected Christ, God is not taking his cues from you. God is God, and he's working out his preordained plan formed long ago, and he is now going to take this judgment, and he's going to bring in a prophecy that all nations, not just the Israelites who have forfeited God, but all nations. And the second part of Joel, he says, and he will pour out his spirit on all nations. And they will all receive the Holy Spirit. Now you're in Pentecost, and here's Peter saying, that's what's going on, folks. These guys rejected. Now, now why is Peter saying that? Because he goes on to the second response. He says, they rejected the Lord. But there's another response in King David. And King David's heart was just the opposite. Instead of rejecting, he pursued the Lord. And so if you look at Psalm 16, listen to David's heart. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And David understood something about the Lord, that God loved him. God, God enjoyed David. That relational quality where David said, I want the Lord. I want to be with God. And so he goes on to say, he says, the sorrows of those who run after another God will multiply. You leave God, you reject God, you'll be suffering. You'll lie down in torment. You won't like your life. You won't like anybody. You won't like the Lord if you don't love love. How are you going to love hate? David, but he goes on in verse 5, 16, 5. But the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup, and you, and you hold my lot. The lines, God, you have drawn my life. The lines of my life have fallen for me in pleasant places. I follow you, God, and life is good. I reject you, and life is bad. Now notice what he says. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also my heart instructs me. David is walking with God, and God is listening and responding. And so David says, I have set the Lord before me. I have set the Lord before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. David's heart is solid and strong. And here you've got an Old Testament king who's just the opposite of those who are, who are going into the destruction. But you will not abandon my soul. But what I want you to hear this morning is this. 
Peter is going back into Scripture to anchor this experience, this Pentecost experience, in this relationship with God. Either you will reject him or you will love and worship him in relationship. And therefore, in Psalm 16, what you see is, is, is David's heart, I see, I feel, I won't be shaken. My heart rejoices, my tongue worships, and I will live in hope, and I will be secure. This is the message of Pentecost. When the Spirit of God comes down, David's words about the messianic promise. It wasn't about David's experience. It was about the prophecy being fulfilled. He will not abandon him on the cross. God is going to save his... This isn't about David. This is using the experience of David in the context of Scripture to fulfill the plan of God. And that pattern was happening again in Pentecost. And so aligning with God's testimony... Aligning with God's scripture, Peter says, this man attested to you by signs and wonder, this man, I'm confirming before all of you, Israel, this man, God made Lord and Christ, and you murdered him. Now get your feelings on. 3,000 people were there And they were just told, you have rejected God just like Israel did. And you murdered him by the hands of the ungodly, but you reject him just like they reject him. And that's what's going on. They weren't concerned about Holy Spirit baptism. They weren't concerned about improving my life. The thing that motivated the New Testament Jewish believers was this. Jesus is the Messiah appointed by God and we killed him. We rejected him. And that pierced their heart. Why? Why did that happen? I will tell you why that happened. The Holy Spirit led them into the conviction that they were not in relationship with Christ. And for that reason, the Spirit of God said, I'm going to pour out my Spirit, and you will come back and understand all that took place. The denouement on the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension. This is what's happening. And his conclusion is this. Notice he didn't say, you're going to get into heaven. It's not about heaven. It's not about baptism. It's about, are you saved If you're not saved by believing in Christ, you're not going to get into heaven, but you're also forfeiting Christ's very prophecy of the Messiah being fulfilled. You'll misunderstand that. Therefore, the call is to repent. And they did. Because they understood it's not about my life or about my community. It's about Christ and me. Christ and us. And therefore, They repented. And here's their context. Repent and be brought back into that relationship through baptism. And if you are in Christ, you will be just like David. I will set the Lord before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. The faith of David, the faith of Peter, the faith of those at Pentecost sealed that experience. 
in Scripture. And that was the root of their faith. Not their experience, not their emotions, that God was fulfilling before them in actual time. This is the Spirit of God. And He's touching me, lifting me, saving me, saving us all. And for those who came to Christ at that point, and they said, I repent, and they got baptized. Notice, notice then that the 3,000 people were joined together. The diversity was brought into harmony. And the church was born. This is the first sermon of the church. It wasn't really a sermon. It was really an experience of being birthed. The labor had now been concluded, and now you have a baby church. Not knowing the Spirit, not knowing Christ's work on the cross, they didn't know a whole lot. They were babies. And yet the beginning, the commencing of the work of the Holy Spirit takes on a whole new dimension. As you read through the book of Acts, read it as though you were the first time ever hearing any of those words. But that's the context I want you to hear. So as you move into that, you'll think that the Spirit of God is being introduced. As Christ was introduced in all of His glory, so the Spirit of God begins the church with this glorious experience. We'll continue this next week. It gets more exciting because we are the people of God and the Spirit of God is here. Let's pray. Lord, there's uh, so much here, so much here that we would love to continue, but we don't have time. So would you just help us, lead us, and help us learn how to listen to you to see what your word says about you so that we would have David's heart and not the other kind. Again, Father, bless your word and help us grow in Christ. Amen.